0: Good morning. Hope you all are doing well. Grateful for Luke Brown and John Mays. I thought, John, you did a great job with the host role. Appreciate that. Grateful for Tiffany Borgelt for reading our scripture this morning. That's the passage that we're in for this whole series on the gospel. And we don't do this often where we take one passage of scripture and we devote an entire series to it. We're going to be unpacking it each week, what it means. We're in week three of the series, and. As this series has unfolded, I hope you start to see, you know, the reality of what that byline or the tagline of the series is really all about is the gospel really is more than you hoped. And there's a lot of depth to that idea, and we're going to explore that some more today. Uh, Before I get into the message, though, I want to tell you that tonight we have two equipping classes that we're offering, and they go perfectly with this series and so i know you've heard about it in the last couple of weeks or maybe you missed it you weren't aware of them or maybe you forgot they're happening i want to encourage you if you're able to come tonight honestly i really don't think you'll regret it so here's what the two of them are so it's tonight at five o'clock let me say that first of all dinner's provided we would ask you to register but you can still do that today so just hop online find the page just tell us you're coming we have child care available uh, there's still space there if you'd like that Here are the two classes. The first one is, so how do we really change? And the idea behind this is, what does it look like for the gospel to really go to work deep down in us? And so today's message is really all about the gospel is grander and bigger, even just than the core idea that trusting in Jesus earns for me an eternal security, although that's certainly true. We're going to even go beyond that and explore the implications of the gospel and how we change. And so tonight's going to be very practical, kind of an unpacking of that. And then the second option so you choose which one you want to go to is exploring the empty tomb and this is going to be an apologetics class on how can we be confident that Jesus actually did rise from the grave that God raised him up and you've got neighbors I've got neighbors and friends that are kind of like scratching their heads like well yeah I know Jesus was a historical person but surely he didn't really rise from the dead now if he did that would be something Right? How do we respond to that? How do we engage in that? This will be an equipping class along those ends, and that goes perfectly with this as well. The core of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, so I encourage you, if you're able to make it tonight, I really think you'll benefit from either of the, those classes. Well, I want to begin by reviewing the series. If you were here two weeks ago, Lloyd Shadrach started off with a question that's pretty profound. What matters most in life? What's most important? And then he took us to 1 Corinthians, this book that Paul wrote, this letter that he wrote to this church, these Christians in Corinth that had kind of gotten off the rails. And here were some of the issues that were happening in this church that Paul wanted to address. And he wrote this letter of correction to them. So one of the problems was disunity in the body. Another problem was sexual immorality that was rampant and going unaddressed another was uh, problems with the Lord's table they were abusing and misusing that practice they had marital problems in the body they were they were um, wounding one another through the court system outside of the church they were misusing their spiritual gifts and the list goes on and on and on and he addresses all these issues and then he gets near the end of the book and what does he talk about he talks about the gospel and it's as if as you know, Lloyd reminded us he's essentially saying all of these problems go back to a failure to remember who you are in the gospel. A failure to remember the good news about Jesus that he died, he was buried, raised on the third day, rose again, appeared to these people. And this is what this means for you. And the rest of the chapter of 1 Corinthians, which we won't go all the way through it, is all about the implications of this news, what it means. And so that's where we want to go this morning. Last week, Michael was here. And Michael talked about the illustration or the analogy of Vince Lombardi holding up that football. You know, gentlemen, this is a football. This is what we do. Men and women of Fellowship Bible Church, this is the gospel. It is found in this book. It's the focus. It's the main thing. And Michael walked us through the the core of the gospel, which is this idea of substitutionary atonement, that Jesus stepped in our place and died on our behalf. And he coached us through just an easy way to remember that, and I want us to say it again together. I'll say it first, and then you can repeat it with me again, that Christ died. In our place, on our behalf, instead of us let me read that again, where I don't stumble in my words. "Christ died in our place, on our behalf, instead of us. Say it with me. Christ died in our place, on our behalf, instead of us." And he said this in the message last week, and this quote is even printed in your program, "All of life must flow from a foundation of understanding what this gospel is and means." That's a pretty big statement, all of life. And that's where I want to go this morning. I want to talk about how all of life is connected to the gospel. And for most of us, that's a little bit of a foreign concept because we tend to think of gospel only in the past tense and future tense. We don't think of it in the present tense. Here's what I mean. The gospel is meaningful to me in my past tense because it's what I believed years ago that made me a Christian. All right, And that's true. The gospel is relevant to me in the future tense because I get to enjoy eternity with Jesus in heaven. True. But what about now? Well... It feels like the gospel doesn't have a ton of relevance to our daily lives. Not true. Not true. And to get there, I want to begin, actually, before we get into the text, I want to begin by reminding you of a famous scene from a movie that my guess is most of all of you have seen, The Lion King. So if you have kids, you've seen it. If you have grandkids, you've probably seen it. Maybe you're young enough where you remember you know, uh, watching it. Uh, maybe you were young when it came out. Or maybe you weren't young, but you remember watching it when it came out. And The Lion King is a story about this young lion cub who's born the son of the king. And he's meant to be the king someday. But before he gets an opportunity to become king, his father's murdered. His father is killed by the uncle. right? He's trying to grab onto the power of the throne. But the uncle is sneaky enough to cast the blame for the father's death on Simba, the young lion cub. So Simba, in shame and guilt and trauma, runs away, flees, thinking that he's unworthy to be the king. And so before Simba dies, he's found by these two other animals, this meerkat and this warthog. And they take him in and they teach him a new way of living, a new way of life. kind of goes by the slogan, Hakuna Matata, no worries. And now you're going to have that song stuck in your head the rest of the day. And so Simba, as he grows up and he becomes a young man, or a young man, young lion, whatever, um, he begins to to, to live life according to a different story, right? that, That calling that he had to be the future king, all the privileges and responsibility of that, that's in the past. And he's doing everything he can to put the past behind him. The guilt and shame of killing his father, that's in the past. And he's living, eating bugs, eating slugs, lying around in a hammock, hakuna matata. All right, no worries, until his father shows up again in his life. And Mufasa, his father, appears to him in the clouds. And this is the scene I want to talk about this, right? You remember this scene. Mufasa says this to Simba. He says, Simba, you have forgotten me, right? Now, I'm not James Earl Jones, but the father's voice is just sort of this penetrating voice for Simba. And it, what turns him around It's what turns him around. But here's the thing. Simba doesn't, you know, his first thought is, no, I haven't forgotten you. You know, in fact, the actual quote from the movie Simba says, how could I? Now, you think about what's going on. There's probably never a day that's passed that Simba hasn't thought about his father, right? He hasn't forgotten who he is. In fact, he probably thinks about his father with a great deal of shame and guilt. But then Mufasa says this to Simba. He says, you've forgotten who you are, and so therefore you have forgotten me. And then this is a great line. You are more than what you have become. Now what's going on here? What had Simba lost? He hadn't forgotten who his dad was. He hadn't forgotten Mufasa. He hadn't forgotten all that had happened, but he'd begun living by a different story, living by a different narrative. You see, he'd forgotten the core narrative that is meant to define his life, and he bought into these other lies. Lie number one, planted in the head by the enemy, was that he was guilty and responsible for his father's death. Lie number two, planted in his mind by well-meaning friends, is that life is really about laying back and having no responsibilities and just enjoying whatever comes your way. And he had structured his life now according to these other narratives, and Mufasa brings him back to the true story. And he says, you have forgotten who you are. You've more than what you've become. Now, I think that's what Paul is doing here for the Corinthians and by extension to us. He's saying, Christian, you have forgotten who you are. You have been living by all these other narratives that have taken you in directions of places that are not healthy for you, places that have caused disunity and brokenness, and all over you, you've been exploring all these other narratives. You've been believing lies. You need to come back to the true narrative of who you are, the gospel, the story. You need to align your life according to the narrative that you are meant to live. In other words, you are more than what you have become. Men and women of Fellowship Bible Church, we need to remember who we are. Our identity is rooted in this story. It's rooted in the gospel. And that's what I want to explore this morning. If you haven't already, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And you know, there's so much in this passage that we could explore to kind of unpack the implications of the gospel for everyday living, for our now, for our present, which is where we want to go this morning. But I want to zoom in on one phrase that that Paul uses that's buried in this sort of gospel formula. It shows up in verse 3. It shows up in verse 4. It's this little phrase, according to the Scriptures. So in verse 3, Paul is saying, you know, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And in verse 4, he was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And we kind of just gloss over that phrase a little bit, But there's a lot packed into that little phrase. The reason that that phrase is so significant is because it connects the events of the gospel to the broader ongoing story of the scripture, which is essentially the story of God and the story of all that there is and the story of you. So what Paul is essentially saying is this good news about Jesus is connected to The bigger, broader story. Now let's drill down a little bit further. According to is a very important word in Greek. It's a connecting word. It's just a a little bitty connector. It's the Greek word kata, if you're going to write it in English, K-A-T-A. And here's what kata means. It's a connecting word that takes two seemingly unrelated concepts and it connects them together in a way that one thing kind of governs over the other. So you might think of it this way. If you were going to build a house, you would build a house according to the blueprints. You wouldn't just go out and start building. It would be a disaster, right? Your building is going to be governed by the plan. If you're going to act out in a drama and you have a role to play in in a play or a movie, you're going to act according to the script, You're not just going to go improvise unless it's that kind of comedy. You're going to go according to the script. This is this idea, according to or in conformity with. So what Paul is saying is this good news. The life, death, resurrection, appearances of Jesus was played out in perfect conformity with the storyline of the scriptures. Now, what scriptures are being referenced here? You know, scholars have spent a lot of time trying to figure out, was he talking about Isaiah this or Ezekiel that or Psalm that? And the answer is yes. <laughs> it's plural, scriptures, not scripture. He, wasn't, he didn't have one in mind. In fact, I want to make the case he didn't even have three or four scriptures in mind. He had the whole Old Testament canon in mind. Now, he wasn't thinking of the New Testament scriptures because most of those hadn't been written yet. So whenever you see that phrase, scriptures, in the New Testament, it's pointing back to the Old Testament for the most part. And that's certainly what's happening here. And the fact that it's plural instead of singular should get your attention because that's unusual. When Paul uses that phrase, it's usually singular according to the scripture, and then he'll quote it, right? Psalm such and such, Isaiah such and such, whatever it is. But this time he's talking more broadly according to the scriptures. And so most scholars have come to the conclusion, and I think they're right on target, that Paul is essentially saying that the entire trajectory of the Old Testament has been pointing to this news, pointing to this event. And that is so significant In other words, the whole point of the scriptural story culminates in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those series of events that happened just over these two or three days is the hinge, the pivot point for the Bible, and by extension, for the history of creation. Now, what's interesting about this as you start wrapping your mind around it is even the way we refer to our time, right? goes back to this event. It's almost, you know, we have BC and we have AD. And, you know, I know there's different vernacular now and different ways you're supposed to talk about that. But still, there's a way that we even keep track of time going back to this moment in history. And what Paul's essentially saying is the whole Bible, the Old Testament pointed to this. And then as we'll see in the rest of the New Testament, when you read that out, it all points back to it. So therefore, all of the story, which is all of creation, kind of hinges and pivots around the person of Jesus Christ and his work on our behalf. Now, why is this such a big idea? Because when you start to understand this, you start to see that Jesus is not just an Old Testament character. You can't isolate him to just a part of the Bible. I'm sorry, New Testament character. You you probably followed me. He's not just a New Testament character. He's all throughout the Bible. He's the whole story. And therefore, you can't isolate him either in your own life and the way you understand your story and your narrative. Let me explain what I mean. I, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke 24. So go to the left. Uh, three or four books or so. And you'll get to the Gospel of Luke. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke. And I want you to turn to Luke 24. And we're going to pick it up near the end of that chapter. And while you're turning there, let me set the context. This event happened uh, on Resurrection Day. And the way this had played out was there was an empty tomb. And these women had gotten there first. They were coming to a you know. Um, Put, put these oils and spices and, and preservatives on Jesus' body. And when they got there, they found an empty tomb, and then they actually saw the resurrected Jesus. And they ran back, told the disciples. The disciples didn't believe it, so they ran, and they didn't see Jesus, but they saw the empty tomb. And so word was getting out among the followers of Jesus. Something's happened, and they don't exactly know yet. It's like, you know, when, when something big happens, like, for example, what happened in Paris a couple days ago, you know, the first... News, information is a little sketchy. You're trying to put it together. And so this is in the, the hours after the resurrection. These two followers of Jesus, not, not, not two of the twelve, but some of his broader followers, are walking from Jerusalem to a different town. And they're talking about these things. And this stranger comes up and starts talking to him. And, of course, it's Jesus, but they don't recognize him. And I think Jesus actually intentionally kind of just blinded their eyes. And then later in the story, he reveals himself to them. But he's like, what are you talking about? And their response is, have you been under a rock? You know, this Jesus that we thought he was Messiah but then he died and now there's this empty tomb we don't know what to do with this what does this mean? And here's what he says. This is where we're going to pick it up. Luke 24 verse 25. 25. And he said to them, "O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory?" Here's the kicker, the big verse. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. By the way, same Greek word that Paul uses later, according to the scriptures, graphos is the word. So where did Paul get that from? Well, he got it from Jesus. All the scriptures. Now, I would have loved to have heard that sermon walking along the road where he starts back in Genesis. By the way, it says beginning with Moses. Moses wrote Genesis, The first five books of the Old Testament, you know Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the Pentateuch, Moses wrote those. All the way through the prophets, well, the the Old Testament ends with these minor prophets. So from Genesis to Malachi, the whole Old Testament points to Jesus, every piece of it. This is the big idea. I want to read to you the way this theological idea that the whole Bible points to Jesus is written in the doctrinal statement for Dallas Theological Seminary. And the reason I picked that one is not just because that's where I went to school, but because it captures better than any other place I've found the implications for this idea that every scripture points to Jesus. Here we go. We believe that all the scriptures center about the Lord Jesus Christ in his person and work in his first and second coming. And hence that no portion, even of the Old Testament, is properly read or understood until it leads. To him. Isn't that interesting? So think about the way we taught Abraham. All right, we just finished up this long series on Abraham. Did you notice how many times Jesus showed up in that story? I mean, like, his name is not in the narrative, but it points to him the whole time. You know, think about Isaac, sacrificing Isaac. You see, it points to the father sacrificing the son. Think about the ram in the thicket. points to the substitute. The ram died so Isaac doesn't have to die. Think about Melchizedek, this mysterious figure who's the, the king of righteousness who comes and meets Abraham and gives him bread and wine and pronounces on him a blessing. Think about the way that God himself in human form showed up to Hagar and rescued her. And, and redeemed her story. God Himself. You see, Jesus is all throughout this story. That's just one example. The whole Bible, the whole narrative points to Jesus, it centers around Him. Now, here's the big idea. All right, I'm going to give you the big idea of what I think Paul means when he says this good news happened according to the scriptures. And this is the big idea of this whole message. So, if you're going to. Write something down, write this down, and then I want to take the rest of the message. I've got about 15 or so minutes. I want to take the rest of the time to talk about what it means for you, to help you apply it. Because the news is even better than you hoped. It's even more than you hoped. That's where I want to go. But here's the big idea. Just as the whole Bible centers around a single narrative about one person, so should you and I. Just as the whole Bible centers around a single narrative, a single story about one person, so should you and I. And of course, that's usually true for us, but usually that one person that our life centers around is not Jesus. It's usually right here, right? My my narrative tends to center around me. But listen, the news about Jesus Christ is meant to be the defining narrative of your life, the story that creates in you an identity. It's meant to be the narrative that reminds you who you are. The narrative that would say to you, you are more than what you have become. You have been living according to other stories, false narratives. You have believed things that aren't true. You have bought into philosophies of life that just aren't right. And you are more than what you have become. So here's where I want to take you is I believe we need to learn to think and live according to the scriptures. We need to learn to think and live according to the scriptures. Now, what do I mean by that? I want to start by saying what I don't mean and then go to what I do mean. Here's what I don't mean. When I say think and live according to the scriptures, I'm not talking about finding the do's and don'ts in the Bible and trying your best to obey those things. Although you could do much worse for your life. I'm talking about something grander. I'm talking about something more transformative than that. Because here's the point of the law of the Bible Paul talks about this the point of the law was to show you that you can't live the law fully the point of all the rules, the point of all of it in the Old Testament law is to point out that you're broken inside, you can never fully carry it out that's why Jesus' harshest words were for the Pharisees those that were trying hardest to live out the law, have you ever thought about that? It's like, man, did he come down too hard on the wrong people? These are the people that were trying their best to live out his law, right? What does Jesus say? He says, you're like whitewashed tombs. In other words, you look good on the outside, but inside you are prideful and you are arrogant and you don't even know you need a savior, right? That person that knows their sin is closer to salvation than you are. You don't recognize your need. His strongest words were to these Pharisees. The point of the law is to point you to Jesus. In other words, to make you understand that you need a Savior. Now, when I say we need to learn to live and think according to the Scriptures, what I would mean is that we would grow more and more to understand and root our identities in the Gospel, in the story of the Scriptures, which culminates in Jesus Christ. That we would understand our own stories according to the story. That you would understand your relationships, your marriages, your careers, your jobs, your parenting, your hopes, your dreams, your disappointments, your brokenness, your heartache, your struggles, your depression, your addiction. That you would understand it all according to this story, according to the story of the gospel, this big narrative that is meant to govern your life. Now, what are some of the false narratives that we've bought into, right? What are some of the lies that that either well-meaning people have gotten us to believe, or in some cases our enemy has gotten us to believe these things? I don't know what they are for you. I know what they are for me. But just listen to some of these. These are some of the false wrong narratives that I tend to live into sometimes, that I tend to believe and I tend to live according to. That being happy is the most important thing in life. That suffering and pain are an enemy to be avoided at all costs. That more stuff brings me fulfillment. That other people exist to give me what I want and need. That comfort is the end goal. That my value is determined by my talent or education or job or physical appearance or net worth. Or I could keep going on and on. We live according to the wrong narratives. We, if you really think about what governs your behavior, what governs your emotion, it's more often than not rooted in some of these ideas. And, and you, we, we have to be called back to the defining story of our lives, which is rooted in the gospel, right? We need the Spirit through the Scripture to say to us, believer in Jesus... You have forgotten who you are. You are more than what you've become. Now, here's what I'd like to do to help us get there. I'd like to retell the story, the story of the scriptures, the story of the gospel. And I'd like to retell it in a way that I hope will allow you to place your story in the story. I'd like to tell it in a way that I hope will be as practical and applicational for you as I possibly can be because every part of this story has profound implications for your relationships, for your hopes and dreams, your careers, your kids, all of it. And you've tended to compartmentalize, okay? And I've, t- I've done this too. And you say, yeah, that Christian story is true, but it really is for my future or it's for my past or it's for my Sundays or it's for my, the religious part of my life, but I don't know how, what it has to say about my marriage. I don't know what it has to say about where I'm at right now other than I guess I need to like find some principle or rule or law from the Bible and start obeying it. It's so much more than that. So I want to retell the story, and the way I want to retell the story is is to group it according to uh, these words or categories that we've used in the past at fellowship. And this is not exclusive to us. There are a lot of other churches and other writings that have kind of used these same terms to categorize the story. But think about the story of the gospel, the story of the scriptures, as a four-act play. Creation, fall, redemption, recreation. And I think it gives you some categories to think about the story from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Creation, fall, redemption, recreation. And I want to retell this story to you in a way that I think you'll be able to relate your own story to the story because each one of those acts of that four-part drama has profound implications for you right now. So here's what I want to do. I want to read to you something I wrote. And, and, and I've never done this before in a message. Like, I don't script out my messages. I have a detailed outline. and I just talk from that. But, but this time, I started writing. And I thought, I think I need to read this. And I wrote it for you. I had you in mind. And I've really been looking forward to this sermon because I can't think of any message I would rather teach to remind you how the greatest story of all time which is the story of the universe, the story of creation has everything to do with what you're going through right now. And so as I read this to you what I'd like you to do is just allow your struggles, your relational brokenness, your hurt, your joy, the good parts of your life, the hard parts of your life, your hopes for the future. Let it all be governed by this narrative, this story that is rooted in the story of the gospel. Act one, creation. From this part of the story, you learn that you were made. Let that sink in. You were made. You are no accident or afterthought. You were formed intentionally with beautiful design and care, and you are known. You learn from the creation story that you bear the image of your Creator. And although it's true that all creation was made to glorify God, you have a particularly special role. You were designed to reflect His image, to live in communion with Him, and to point other people toward him. You learn that you were never intended to be alone, but rather to know other human beings and be known by them, to love other people, to give deeply of yourself, and to be loved by them in return. You learn that God desires for you to be at rest in the distinctiveness of your sexuality as man or woman, unashamed in your literal and figurative nakedness, you learn that you were made for life-giving work. You were created to apply your energy, passion, and creativity toward good and fulfilling purposes. You were meant to co-labor with God and His creation. And finally, this part of the story teaches you that your highest purpose is to represent God's glory on the earth, which means that you're never more truly who you really are than when you are worshiping God. Act two, the fall. From this part of the story, you learn that you dwell in a broken and grieving creation. And so you carry deep within you a gnawing sense that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And that's right. You learn from the fall that all of your relationships, every one of them, is critically affected by mutual brokenness. That means that no matter how desperately you desire it, true intimacy always seems just a bit out of your reach, doesn't it? Most tragically, you learn that death is the dark and inevitable fate for you and for everyone you love. Your body will fail your strength will pass. It's a matter of when. And so the reality of the fall means that it is natural and normal and even perfectly right to ache, to hurt, to grieve, to long for a different place, to feel like you need a true home. You do. You also learn from this part of the story that the darkness and depravity are not just out there, but they're here. They're inside. Sin is personal. You yourself are broken. Your heart is misshapen and wounded. It is twisted and it is depraved. You are selfish. You have inherited a sometimes subtle but always uncontrollable rebellious heart toward your Creator. You have said to God... Through your actions, if not your words, quote, I'm a better God for myself than you. I will seek life apart from your design for me. I will turn my heart towards things you have created rather than toward you. And I will worship other things because I don't believe you yourself are enough for me. From the mess of the fall, you learn that even your most righteous acts are like filthy rags. What does that even mean? It means that your instinct is to try to prop yourself up with good behavior or religious deeds or self-righteousness, doing the right things but for all the wrong reasons. It means that your motivations are more often than not rooted in selfishness and brokenness. Your goal is to make yourself feel less guilty, look good before others, or try to earn some kind of standing before a God whom you don't fully know or deeply trust. From the fall... You learn that no matter how disciplined you are, how much doctrine you know, how many years you've been walking with God, how righteous you view yourself, how much money you give, how many verses you've memorized, or how many church services you've attended, you desperately need a Savior. Act three, redemption. Good news. The best news imaginable. Even while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. From this part of the story, you learn that God's own Son became a man and lived the life that you could not live. He obeyed and trusted the Father wholeheartedly, which you could never fully do. Then He died in your place. The death you deserved. Your death. The story of redemption means that God recognizes in you a man or a woman that could never be enough or do enough, but that didn't stop him from choosing you and loving you and sending a Savior for you. And if you've turned toward the Savior simply by believing in his life, death, and resurrection, here's what that means for you. It means that you no longer have to carry the weight of the guilt of your sin. Whatever you've done that makes you feel unworthy to be accepted and loved by your creator has been wiped clean. Shame has no power over you anymore. The story of redemption means for you right now that you've been brought from death to life And although your body may still be decaying right now, the literal presence of God indwells you through His Spirit all of the time, whether you feel Him or not. It means that you don't have to perform for acceptance any longer. You're free to obey God out of gratitude and love, not from guilt or fear. It means there's no future version of yourself that God delights in any more than who you are right now in Christ. It means that no one apart from Jesus Christ can shape your identity. How others perceive you, how they think about you, what they say about you, how they relate to you carries no eternal weight. That means that you're actually free to love other people because you don't have to grasp your value and worth and identity from anyone else anymore. Redemption means that your worth, identity, and value are rooted not in your career achievement, relational status, net worth, physical beauty, education level, athletic ability, ethnic background, or social standing. They are rooted solely in the completed work of Christ on your behalf. Finished work. And finally, the story of redemption means that you can rest. You can breathe. You can smile. You can laugh. You can even fall on your face without fear. You can sing. You can give to others lavishly. You can enter into dark spaces for the glory of God. In other words, you can be all that you were created to be. Act four, recreation. The news gets even better. In this part of the story, we learn that Jesus has gone on ahead to prepare a place for us, a home, finally, so that where he is, we may also be. We learn that the Son of God himself will stitch together all the broken pieces, your broken pieces, the people you care about, your broken relationship, those broken pieces, the broken pieces of the creation around us. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain for all of those things will have fallen fallen away as Jesus makes all things new. This means that although right now you may have some measure of joy and happiness on this earth, real life hasn't even begun yet. That life will take your breath away. From the recreation story, we learn that our enemy's days are numbered. His destruction is certain. We learn that death itself will be destroyed, swallowed whole by unending life. And finally, from the recreation story, we learn that Jesus the King will rule in perfect justice and perfect peace from his throne forever. And we learn that best of all, we will be with him, a people of God, in the place of God, with full access to the presence of God. This is the story. This is our story. This is your story. This is the narrative that defines who you are and how you are to live according to the scriptures. It means that in the creation, you understand all that you are called to be. In the fall, you understand all that you are not and all that you've lost. But in the redemption, all that you can be through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and in the recreation, which you have to look forward to. And men and women, you are more than what you have become. Let's come back to the good news. The story from Genesis to Revelation It all points to the one, our hero, God in flesh, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is the good news. Our Father, as we think about this story, There is something that stirs in us that says, this is the story. Your spirit that is in us, as we hear this story proclaimed, says yes. Your spirit that is in us, those of us who have trusted Jesus Christ, would say, this is true. This is who I am. This explains my hurt and my brokenness, but this points me to hope. Father, forgive us for living according to things that aren't right, that aren't real, that aren't true, that aren't who we really are. We turn away from those narratives and we turn to the scripture that guides us to be who you've called us to be that speaks to us and says we have been given already what we could never gain for ourselves and father i pray for these men and women because when we take time like we do this morning to try to strip away the pursuit of comfort and the addictions and all these other things that that we all wrestle with and entangle our lives, and we actually see a glimpse of who we're meant to be, it creates in us this tension of sorrow and joy. And these men and women need the guidance of your spirit to live into that today and tomorrow. Father, I pray that you would draw them to your word I pray that they would see your son, Jesus Christ, in everything that they read, that it would point to him, it would point to their redemption, it would point to their savior, their hero. All the stories of scripture would culminate in their minds with this work that you did through your son for us, but more than that, for you, for your glory. And I pray this in the great name of Jesus Christ. Amen.